0: 21, they hidden themselves all around and above the steep slope, and from their embuscades rolled stones down on the Spaniards, every one of whom was killed, having gotten my mule safely over this dangerous track, where they could never have been rescued if they had lost their footing, I arrived after a while at the home of the shaman, near which I camped, when I went up to the house, I found it empty, and was barely in time to see a woman making her escape with a child as best she could. I realized that if the shaman did not return that evening or early next day, I should have to return to a lodges. The plaintiff trumpet sound of a giant woodpecker about sunset as far as we could make out. The only living being in the vicinity did not detract from the gloominess of the prospect. Luckily, however, my shaman friend came to my tent at daybreak next morning, and thus relieved my anxiety, though exceedingly busy cutting down trees and shrubs to clear his field. He spared one of his helpers to show me the way to ants, charging only three reels for the accommodation, and one real extra twelve cents in Mexican money to be paid to the man in case I should want him to go farther and show me the way to Agwood Copies. I also improved the opportunity to get from him some ethnological information and a short Tepehuang vocabulary. Thus with lightened heart I started off through a country that, while it did not present any remarkably steep ascents and descents, was very rough and hard to travel, the main sierra is here very narrow, and the large mountainous mass broken up into irregular ridges and steep valleys, the next day, much of the time we followed a high, rocky ridge, the highest point of which is called Mojonras, here, 10 miles north of Pueblo Viejo, the boundary line of the territory of Tepec is set to run, for several miles on the road, and particularly from the last mentioned ridge, Magnificent views of the wild country northward present themselves, over the steep descent into the canons and gorges of the western part of the Sierra Madre, only three Tepehuan ranches were observed, I arrived without any mishap at Pueblo Viejo, which is inhabited mainly by Aztecs, of late years they have become much mixed with the Tepehuans, who have here taken refuge from drought and the advancing neighbors, Indian settlers who thus come from other pueblos are called poblanos they receive land from the community in return for the services they render, and the two tribes freely intermarry, although, neighbors, are never allowed to settle within the confines of the village, still the people, who have considerable intercourse with a and who also go some distance to a work in the mines of Cinello, speak Spanish quite well, indeed, of the three languages spoken here, Spanish is the one most generally heard, several Nahuatlang words have been forgotten, and in making out my list of collections I had great difficulty in getting designations for some of the objects, for instance the word for quiver, and for the curious rattling anklets used by dancers, only elderly people speak Nahuatl correctly, and the Tepewan influence is strong here, even in the ancient religion of the people, it was curious to note that many people here, as in lodges, eat neither hens nor sheep, while they freely partake of beef, people here are more intelligent and much less reticent than in lodges, women when addressed will answer you, while in lodges the inhabitants are guarded, and suspicious even of other Indians, not to speak of neighbors, another difference is that very few drink mezcal, that a meeting I had with the Indians, I remarked, in my desire to please them, that the Mexican government was interested to know whether they were getting on well or whether they were coming to an end, to this the principal speaker at once laughingly rejoined, Of course. They want to know how soon they can finish us. The Indians here had the usual trouble from neighbors trying to encroach upon their territory. Once a delegation from this and the neighboring pueblos undertook a journey to the city of Mexico in order to settle the troubles about their land. They stopped 11 days in the capital and were well received by the Ministerio del Fomento, but their money gave out before they finished their business. And they had to walk all the way back without having accomplished anything. I found these Indians law-abiding and obliging, and I had no great difficulty in securing permission to be present at a meetote, which was to be given at a ranch in the neighborhood. On March 24, a little before sunset, we started out on a ride of an hour and a half, ascending some 3.000 feet on a winding Indian trail up to a high mesa. It was a starlit, beautiful night, but the magnificent view which this mesa commanded could only be surmised. There are a few ranches here owned by people from the pueblo below, a man sometimes living in his ranch here during the wet season, while for the remainder of the year he occupies one in the pueblo. As we entered on the plane we could distinctly hear the beating of the tautal, the musical instrument of the once, At this distance it sounded like a big drum. We passade the ranch which was giving the mitot, and a hundred yards farther on we came upon a picturesque scene. Here on a meadow the Indians were grouped around the many fires whose lights flickered among the trees. There was just a pause in the dancing, which had begun soon after sunset. I could at once discern a little plane set apart for the dancing. On its eastern side was an altar of the usual description, fenced on two sides with felled trees, on which were hung the paraphernalia of the dancers, their bows, quivers, etc. In the center of the dancing place was a large fire, and to the west of it the shaman was seated on a stool, behind him, similar though smaller stools were set for the owner of the ranch and the principal men, strange to say, the shaman was a one. I learned later that the Aztecs consider the shamans of that tribe better than their own, in front of the shaman was the musical instrument on which he had been playing, this was a large, round board, on top of which above unusual size was placed with its back down. The shaman's right foot rested on a board which holds the bow in place on the board, the bow being made taut, the shaman beats the string with two sticks, in a short, rhythmical measure of one long and two short beats, When heard nearby, the sonorousness of the sound reminds one of the cello, this is the musical bow of America, which is here met with for the first time, it is intimately connected with the religious rites of this tribe, as well as with those of the chorus and the calls the latter playing it with two arrows, the assertion has been made that the musical bow is not indigenous to the Western Hemisphere, but was introduced by African slaves, without placing undue importance on the fact that Negroes are very rarely, if at all, found in the northwestern part of Mexico. It seems entirely beyond the range of possibility that a foreign implement could have become of such paramount importance in the religious system of several tribes. Moreover, this opinion is confirmed by Mr. R. B. Dixon's discovery in 1900 of a musical bow among the Mido Indians on the western slope of the Sierra Nevada, northeast of San Francisco, California. In the religion of that tribe also this bow plays an important part, and much secrecy is connected with it. The shaman's song sounded very different from the songs I had heard among the Tarahum As his seat was high, he had to maintain a stooping position all the time he played. The dancers, men and women, made much noise by stamping their feet soles vigorously on the ground. As they moved in double column around the fire and the shaman, in a kind of two-step walk forward, they danced in a direction against the apparent movement of the Sunday the men leading, the women following. I noticed that the step of the women was slightly different from that of the men, inasmuch as they lifted themselves on their toes at each step. At times the columns would suddenly stop and make the same kind of movements backward for a little while, with the same small jumps or skips as when walking forward. After a few seconds they would again go forward. These movements are directed by the leader, the man who dances first. Both men and women wore flowers, the former fastening them to their straw hats, the latter in their hair with the stem behind the ear. The flowers were apparently selected according to individual taste, but the kind I saw most frequently was a white blossom called corpus, the delicious fragrance of which I noticed every time the women danced by. Two boys had a peculiar kind of white flower fastened with a handkerchief tied around their heads. It is called clavillinos, and looks like thick, white hair. The shaman wore a narrow hair ribbon, but no flower. Around their ankles the men had wound strings of dried empty pods of a certain palm, which made a rattling noise during the dancing. Five times during the night, ears of corn and plumes were brought from the altar, and then the men always removed their hats. The women wore veils ribosos but it is considered improper for them to use sandals on such occasions, these are worn only by the men, there were five pauses made in the course of the night, and, to prepare the people for them, the shaman each time began to strike more slowly, the dancers continued until they arrived in front of the altar, where they commenced to jump up and down on the same spot, but with increasing rapidity, until the music stopped, when they separated and lay down, Those who did not take any part in the dancing were lying around the various fires. The number of the dancers changing with the different songs, according to the degree of enthusiasm among the people. Many went to sleep for a while. But this is not deemed very polite to the owner of the ranch, as the effect of the dancing is much greater upon the gods when everybody takes part. I was told that to keep the people awake a man sometimes goes around spurting cold water over the drowsy and nodding heads. The function had been opened by the owner of the ranch making alone five circuits around the fire, carrying the musical instrument and the two playing sticks and doing reverence to the sun every time he passed the altar. Just before sunrise the meat concluded with the dramatization of the killing of the deer. Deer skins were brought from the bower of the altar, and the men put on their bows and quivers, each of which contained twenty-five arrows and had two slings attached to it. The men held the deer skins in their hands and danced five circuits. Two lightfoot boys next appeared on the scene to play the part of the deer. They had deer skins on their backs and in their hands held deer heads with antlers. These they showed five times alternately to the shaman who furnished the music and to the altar. Then they began to run, followed by the dancers who shouted and shot arrows. Also trying to catch the deer by throwing lassos that had been kept in the bower. Often they had to flee from the deer, who chased them off the dancing place. But they returned and at sunrise the deer were captured on a matting spread before the altar, where the dancers now took positions. Starting from here they next made five circuits around the dancing place in the direction of the apparent movement of the sun then five circuits in the opposite way. The shaman's beating slowed down. Once more all the dancers jumped up quickly. The music stopped, and the dancing was finished. Now the feasting began. The food, that had been placed on the altar, cannoli and toasted corn, was brought forward, and the host and his wife ate first, after they had thus broken fast, all sat down, and to each one the following dishes were served on little earthenware platters or bowls, a small slice of deer meat that had been cooked between hot stones in an earth mound, and a handful of toasted corn, a ball made of cannoli mixed with and broken beans, four tamales, and one ball of deer meat and ground corn boiled together, the last name course is simply called Koyana deer. The boys who served it had on their backs three bun each containing three tamales, which the boys afterward ate. The host always asks his guests to submit for four days longer to the restrictions that are necessary to ensure the efficiency of the dancing. These refer mainly to abstinence from a and women, and are conscientiously observed for five days before and five days after the occasion, by the family who arranges the dance, the shaman on whom the obligation to observe these formalities is greater than on anyone else, may have to officiate at another meet before the time limit for the first has expired. Therefore much of his time is spent in privations. After the feast, the topics, that is to say, the matting, which constituted the top of the altar, is hung up in a tree to be used again the next year. The trees that have formed the bower near the altar are left and disturbed. The ceremonial objects are placed in the trees for four or five days and then put into a basket which is hung in some cave, that Pueblo Viejo no more tribal oats are given, and it seems that no family anywhere makes more than one a year, when a newly married couple wish to give their first meetote, they go away from the house for a month, both of them bathe and wash their clothes, and impose restrictions upon themselves, sleeping most of the time, when awake they talk little to each other, and think constantly of the gods, only the most necessary work is done, He brings wood and she prepares the food, consisting of tortillas, which must not be toasted so long that they lose their white color. A thin white gruel, called al, made from ground corn, is also eaten, but no deer meat, nor fish with the exception of a small kind called mitchi. Neither salt nor beans are allowed. The blankets they wear must also be white. During all this time they must not cut flowers or bathe or smoke, they must not get angry at each other and at night they must sleep on different sides of the fire, fasting and abstinence form an integral part of the religion of these people, a man who desires to become a shaman must keep strictly to a diet of white tortillas and et al for five years, his drink is water, and that only once a day, in the afternoon, the people here once fasted for two months, in order to aid General Porfirio Díaz to become President of Mexico, And they told me that they were soon going to subject themselves to similar privations in order to help another official whom they wanted to remain in his position. Fasting also plays an important part in the curing of diseases. The patient, with his doctor, may go out and live in the woods and fast for many days. The shaman smoking tobacco all the time. An omen as to whether the patient will live or die is taken from the color of the tobacco smoke. If it is yellow, the omen is bad. Or if the smoke remains dense, the patient will live but if it disperses he will die. A very interesting ceremony is performed over a child when it is one year old. The parents go with the shaman into the field and fast for five days before the anniversary and for five days afterward. An hour or two after sunset a big fire is made and four arrows and the ceremonial object called God's eye are placed east of it. The parents and those present look east all the time. The shaman first makes four ceremonial circuits. Then puffs tobacco smoke on the God's eye and on the child. He sings incantations and again makes four ceremonial circuits, and smokes as before. Next he places his mouth to the child's forehead, and draws out something that is called the coachist, the sleep or dreams, spinning it out in his hand, he makes a motion with his plumes as if he lifted something up with them from his hand, and holds the plumes over the god's eye for a while. The people now see that two small, white balls are attached to the plumes, and he shows them to all present, to prove that he does not deceive them. Then he crushes the balls in his left hand with a sound as if an egg was cracked, and throws them away. In the morning salt is offered to the rasters. The coachist is taken away from boys twice and four times from girls. A boy cannot get married until the coachist is taken away. A girl at the age of puberty is pledged to a year of chastity, and the same ceremony is performed on her as in babyhood, to be repeated in the following year. Should she transgress during that time the belief is that she or her parents or her lover will die. The principle of monogamy is strictly enforced. And if a woman deviates from it she has to be cured by the shaman. Or an accident will befall her a jaguar or a snake will bite her. Or lightning strike her. Or a scorpion sting her. Etc. She gives the shaman a wad of white cotton. Which he places on the god's eye. When he smokes tobacco and talks to the god's eye. Information is given to him through the cotton. Which reveals to him whether she has more than one husband, and even the name of the unlawful one. He admonishes her to confess, explaining to her how much better the result will be, as he then can cure her with much greater strength. Even if she confesses, she is only half through with her trouble, because the shaman exacts heavy payment for the cure, from 10 to 20. If she cannot pay now, she has to come back in a month, and continue coming until she can settle her account, by rights. The man should pay for her. But often he runs away and leaves her in the lurch. Since the Indians have come in contact with the Mexicans this happens quite often. When at length the money is paid and she has confessed everything. There is nothing more for the shaman to do but to give an account of it to the gods eye. And she goes to her home absolved. One year afterward she has to come back and report. And should she in the meantime have made another slip. She has to pay more from all the cotton the shaman gets he may have girdles and hair ribbons made, which he eventually sells, the custom related above is of interest as showing the forces employed by ancient society to maintain the family intact, fear of accidents, illness or death, more even than the fine or anything else, keeps the people from yielding too freely to the impulses of their senses, the treatment accorded to the dead by these people, and their notions regarding them, are, in the main. The same as those obtaining with the tribes which I visited before them. But there are some new features that are of interest. Here, for instance, near the head of the dead, who lies stretched out on the ground in the house. The shaman places a god's eye and three arrows, and at his feet another arrow. He sings an incantation and smokes tobacco, though not on the dead. While the widow makes yarn from some cotton, which she has first handed to the shaman. When she has finished the yarn, she gives it to the shaman who tears it into two pieces of equal length, which he ties to the arrow standing at the right hand side of the man, one piece he rubs over with charcoal, this is for the dead, and is tied lower down on the arrow, he winds it in a ball, except the length which reaches from the arrow to the middle of the body, where the ball is placed under the dead man's clothes, the other thread the shaman holds in his left hand, together with his pipe and plumes, after two incantations he divides the white thread into pieces of equal length, as many as there are members of the family and gives one piece to each they tie them around their necks and wear them for one year afterward they are mixed with some other material and from them a ribbon or girdle is made on the fifth day the dead is dispatched from this world in the small hours of the morning the shaman with his plumes and pipe and a jar of water into which some medicinal herbs have been thrown leads the procession toward the west while the people including women and children carry branches of the zapodi tree they stop, while it is still dark, and the shaman steps forward and dispatches the deceased. He returns very soon, and sprinkles water on the people and toward the west, where the dead has gone. Chapter XXVI Inexperienced help out to acquire riches from the mountains Sierra del Mayor at the core is their aversion to papers, their part in Mexican politics a de general of fichet It is practically impossible to travel from tribe to tribe in Mexico without changing muleteers not only because the men generally object to going so far from their homes, but also because it is not advantageous to employ men who do not know the country through which they are passing. Whenever the Indians understood something about packing mules, I preferred them to the Mexicans, because I could learn much from them on the way. The latter part of my travels I employed none but Indians. The unwillingness of desirable men to leave their homes makes a frequent change very embarrassing. My next destination from Pueblo Viejo was Santa Teresa, the most northern of the Cora Pueblos, and everybody thought it was too far away. I had finally to take whatever I could get in the way of carriers. For instance, I had only one man on whom I could depend, a civilized Tepauan, who was bright and knew his business well, but he was hampered by an injured arm. Then I obtained another man, somewhat elderly, he, too became suddenly aware that his right arm was crooked and not strong enough to lift heavy burdens, while the two remaining carriers had never loaded a mule in their lives, the first two directed the other pair how to proceed, and thus I was treated to the ludicrous spectacle of four men engaged in packing one mule, naturally it took all day to load my ten animals, and when this was accomplished, it was too late to start, so that the day's work turned out to be nothing but a dress rehearsal in the noble art of packing mules. The result was that I had to take a hand myself in putting the apparejos on the animals, shooing them and curing the sore backs, which, as a matter of course, developed from the inexperience of some of the men. On the second day, by a stupendous effort, we started, but could go only eight miles to a beautiful lano surrounded by oaks and pines. A few ranches are all that remains of the village that once existed here. On one of them lived a rich cora who had married a Tetawan woman. All cores get rich the Indians here assert, because they know better how to appease the gods, they submit to fasting and restrictions for a month, or even a year, and then go, to the richest mountain the ancient people knew, the master of the mountain comes out and the two make a bargain, the core agreeing to pay for the cattle, deer, corn, and other possessions, with men that he kills, the belief that the mountains are the masters of all riches of money, cattle, mules, sheep, and shepherds is common among the tribes of the Sierra Madre. When it devolves upon Korah to make good his agreement and kill a man, he makes from burnt clay, strips of cloth, etc. a small figure of the victim and then with incantations puts thorns through the head or stomach, to make the original suffer. He may even represent the victim on horseback, and place the figure upside down to give him pain. Sometimes a Ikora makes a figure of the animal he wants, forming it of wax or burn clay, or carving it from tuff, and deposits it in a cave in the mountain, for every cow, deer, dog, or hen wanted, he has to sacrifice a corresponding figure. The next day we followed for some time the Camino Real, which leads from Acaponita to the towns of Mesquitla and Durango. We then descended without difficulty some 3.000 feet into the canon of Chivacra, through which flows a river of the same name, said to originate in the state of Zacatecas. It passes near the cities of Durango and Sombra-Rate, the side of Cerro Gordo, in this valley, which runs in a northerly and southerly direction. We found some Tepewans from the Pueblo of San Francisco. The Indians here were defiant and disagreeable, and would not even give us any information about the track we were to follow. They had the reputation of stealing mules and killing travelers for the sake of the corn the latter are likely to carry. I therefore put two men on guard and allowed them to fire off a rifle shot as a warning something they always like to do. The sound reverberated through the still night with enough force to frighten a whole army of robbers. The next morning I sent for the most important atwan, told him the object of my visit, and asked him about the track. He gave me what information he could, but he was unable to procure a guide for a longer time than that day. We were then left to ourselves, with the odds against us. Twice we lost our way, the first time passing a meeto dancing place. And coming to a halt before a steep mountain wall, passable only for agile Indians. The second time we landed at the edge of a deep barranca, and there was nothing to do but to turn back to a ranch we had passed some time before. Luckily we met there a Tepewan and his wife, who assured us that we were at last on the right track. However, we did not advance farther than the confluence of two arroyos, which the man had wound out to us deep down in the shrubbery. Before leaving us he promised to be at our camp in the morning to show us the road to Las Botiges, a small aggregation of ranches at the summit. In a straight line we had not gone that day more than three miles. When passing one of our guide's ranches and he had three within sight I noticed near the track a small shuttle about 100 yards off. The man told me that he was a shaman and that here he kept his musical outfit, ceremonial arrows, etc., though he appeared to be an open-heart young man. I could not induce him to show me this private chapel of his, and we had to go on, he parted from us on the summit, but described the road so well that we encountered no difficulty during the remaining two days of our journey, I was glad to be once more up on the highlands, the more so that we succeeded in finding their arroyos with water and grass, on reaching the top of the cordon we had been following, we came upon a camino real running between the villages of San Francisco and Santa Teresa, and now we were in the Sierra del Neyarit, I was rather surprised to find another barranca close by, parallel with the one we had just left. As far as I could make out, this new gorge begins near the Pueblo of Santa Maria Cotan. High up in the Sierra, at least my old Mexican informed me that the river which waters it rises at that place and passes the Cora the Pueblos of Guayzamota and Jesus Maria. We traveled along the western edge of this barranca, within which there are some Aztec, but mainly Cora villages. There is still another Barranca to the east of and parallel to this, and in this the Waikals live, what is called Sierra del Meirid is in the beginning a rather level and often narrow cordon, and the track south leads near the edge of the Barranca de Jesus Maria for 10 or 12 miles, along this ridge hardly any other kind of tree is to be seen in Pinus Lumholcii, a variety of pine which resembles this very much, but is much larger, and which I think may also be a new species was observed after leaving Pueblo Nuevo, the cordon gradually widens, and open, grass-covered places appear among the pines, which now are of the usual kinds, and throughout the Sierra del Meirat are high, but never large, a few chorus pass leading mules loaded with panoche, to be exchanged in Santa Maria Cotan for Mescal, the most conspicuous things in the chorus-traveling outfit are his rifle and one or two homemade pouches which he slings over his shoulder. There is an air of manliness and independence about these Indians, and this first impression is confirmed by the entire history of the tribe. We passate a few ranches on the road, and at last reached the little lano on which Santa Teresa is situated. It is always disagreeable to approach a strange Indian pueblo, where you have to make your camp, knowing how little the people like to see you. And here I was among a tribe who had never heard of me, and who looked upon me with much suspicion as I made my entry. There were many people in town preparing for the Easter festival, practicing their parts in certain entertainments in vogue at that season. At last I met a man willing to show me where I could find water. He led me outside of the village to some deep and narrow clefts in the red earth, from which a rivulet was issuing. I selected my camping place nearby, at the foot of some low pine-covered hills, and then returned to the pueblo. Amigo! shouted a man as he came running toward me from his house. It was the Alcalde. A tall, slender Indian with a slight beard and a very sympathetic voice. I told him that we were entirely out of corn, to which he replied that we could not get any in the Pueblo, only on the ranches in the neighborhood. I asked him if he wanted us to die from starvation, and then another man offered me half the fame I got. I inquired of the judge whether he did not want to see my papers. We do not understand papers, he replied. Still it was agreed that the Indians should meet me next morning and that my chief man, the Tepehuan, should read my letters from the government, because the preceptor of the village was away in the city of Tepeque, and no one else was able to read. Santa Teresa is called in Coraquemalusi, after the principal one of the five mythical men who in ancient times lived in the Sierra del Neyarit. Reports say an evil now hidden was once found here. A few miles east of Santa Teresa is a deep volcanic lake, the only remnant of the large flood, the Corus say. It is called, Mother or, brother, the last name containing a reference to their great god, the morning star, Chulavitae. There are no fish in it, but turtles and ducks. The water is believed to cure the sick and strengthen the well, and there is no ceremony, in the core religion for which this water is not required. It is not necessary to use it pure, it is generally mixed with ordinary spring water, and in this way sprinkled over the people with a red orchid, or a deer tail stretched over a stick. Early next morning a good-looking young Indian on horseback rode up to the tent to pay me a visit. He spoke Spanish very well. I treated him with consideration and proffered him some biscuits I happened to have. In the course of the conversation he offered to sell me a fowl, if I would send a man to his ranch for it, which of course I was glad to do. As he was taking leave, I expressed my admiration for the handsome native made halter on his horse. Do you like it? he asked and he immediately removed it from the horse and presented it to me. I wanted to pay for it, but he said, We are friends now, and rode off. The fowl he sent was the biggest he had in his yard.